Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. My name is Sylvan, and I will be your host. Today, we're heading back to the beautiful city of Lausanne to meet with Patrick Thévaux, co-founder and CEO at Flyability, as well as with Swisscom Ventures investment partner, Alexander Schlapfer. Flyability develops drones for the inspection and exploration of indoor, inaccessible and confined spaces. But drones are not the only thing flying at this startup. The company is currently growing like crazy and is even ranked as Switzerland's number one startup on the top 100 list. We arrived shortly after lunchtime and realized that most employees have lunch together and therefore also spend some of their free time with the company. This is usually a really good indicator of a strong company culture. The beautiful view over Lake Geneva and the adjoining mountains is probably another reason why the office is so valued by its employees. What was particularly noticeable on our tour through the office was the visual communication of their core values. Their 10-point manifesto is communicated all over the company and explained in detail with posters of every single point. This is not only a great guideline for employees, but also an impressive form of developing a successful culture. After this memorable tour, we sit down in the conference room and start with the podcast recording. Swisscom Ventures is the venture capital arm of Swisscom, the leading telecommunications and IT services provider in Switzerland. Since their inception in 2007, Swisscom Ventures has invested in over 60 Swiss and international tech startups that foster digital transformation. If you're an entrepreneur building a product that drives the digitalization in a certain market and you are looking for capital, then reach out to the Swisscom Ventures team at www.venture.swisscom.com. Alexander and Patrick, a very warm welcome to the show. It's great to have you here today. It's a great pleasure to be at Flyability, our favorite portfolio company. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for, uh, for having us uh, today. Very excited to, uh, to share uh, a uh, little bit of what we have learned uh, along the way. We're curious to hear more about your story, uh, Patrick. Uh, you studied engineering at the EPFL in Lausanne and then worked as a consultant for about four years in total. So I'm wondering, what have you actually learned in your corporate career that you could then also apply to your startup viability? Sure. Well, I think, well, as I was studying engineering, I, I pretty much very early realized that I, I really wanted uh, and needed things to go really fast. And uh, that was what, what consulting was a good platform for uh, learning really fast new things. Uh, it was this ability to change companies, uh, working in uh, you know uh, one of the biggest uh, pharma company, moving to uh, a, a smaller company, doing uh, agriculture in another part of the world, and then um, uh, working for the food industry. So that was that was forever changing. Uh, very focused on one particular uh, issue at a time, and uh, it allowed basically um, it really allowed me to get an understanding of how different companies are operating, which is such an important thing when you're, when you're a first-time entrepreneur and you have to redo everything. Uh, things that have already been done a hundred times, but when you just start, you need to understand, okay, what are the, 
general, you know, workplace policies and uh, how do, um, what should I be uh, uh, providing uh, uh, as a, what are the key aspects of, uh, of a good uh, working environment. Uh, um, and all of those little things by, by working in large, very well-established corporations that have very well thought out processes and ways of working uh, saved us probably a lot of time. Uh, however, in the consulting business, the problem is that you can only focus for so long on one particular topic. Uh, things come to an end and you really lack this connection with the output of your work. And, you know, did, did, it, did it work? Did this, uh, all those um, uh, ideas that we had and that started implementing, uh, uh, did it uh, come to fruition at some point? And uh, this is what really pushed me to move to, um, to, to, to start, you know, our, our, our company at Flyability to have a long-term impact on a, on a particular project. Fantastic. You also started the company that you just mentioned, Flyability, with your second cousin, Adrian. Can you tell us how you actually reached the decision of starting your own company and why Adrian is the right co-founder? We, you often hear that the, the choice of your, of the, of your co-founder is, is one of the most critical success factor in uh, building a, a business and one of the important uh, reasons for failing for, for early um, startups. In our case, well, with Adrian, we know each other since we were, we were born. Uh, so uh, it allowed us to, to spend uh, pretty much uh, 30 years worth of, uh, of holidays together. Uh, so both uh, from a personal standpoint, and we also studied at EPFL together at the same time by, by uh, a coincidence, actually. We didn't, um, it was not a, a decision to go in the same class, but we both were interested in, uh, in uh, robotics and engineering. So uh, we ended up working together, um, and uh, we realized that uh, um, it was uh, something that was very efficient, very complementary, um, both very, very hardworking and, and dedicated, I believe. So we were, uh, we were always doing all our projects uh, together uh, for school and uh, getting them done in, uh, in, uh, in a very short amount of time and, uh, and then uh, spending uh, the rest of the times that we had uh, having, uh, having beers at the, at the school bar. So um, that was a fairly obvious choice. And uh, I think even before knowing what we were going to be developing together, uh, we had this idea of, of of trying to build a company, uh, the, the two of us. And that was, uh, yeah, back in, in 2014. And uh, I was actually at this time, indeed, I, I had taken a, a gap year from, the, from my, my consulting job and uh, traveling around the world. And then at some point I was like, okay, I'm coming back in two months. Uh, let's get together and build something. And, you know, I have a few ideas and maybe you also have some of yours. So let's, Let's try to, 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 to find a, a good um, a business to, to start. And that's, that's where he actually was finishing his PhD thesis and had uh, actually a pretty good uh, and interesting uh, project uh, um, ready for, uh, for, for us to, to work on. Awesome. And I think that was, uh, that was the first uh, prototype that was already built by Adrian back in the days, right? Yeah, yeah we were very lucky because we, we started the company with a, with a prototype with a research prototype, uh, which is, uh, um, and we, we realized that later, but uh, it's actually a very, very little step actually from uh, a product. And, um, you know, when in our young, I would say, naive minds, uh, having a, a working prototype was already uh, at least half the job done. Uh, it turned out it was, it was really not. And that there was, uh, there, was, there was actually a lot, a lot of work down the line to get to a, to a, to a successful product. Yeah. Before we talk about how you actually successfully executed that and how you developed your, your product with your clients, 
I would also like to focus a bit on the macro level perspective. Alexander drones are becoming an increasingly popular technology that are more uh, used in different areas and spaces. So where is this whole industry and trend going from your perspective, from your understanding? It's actually interesting uh, looking back also. You know, drones originally emerged in the military and, and homeland security uh, space. And so you, you talk fairly big and very expensive pieces of equipment. And then you would normally, you know, with cost reductions and so on, you would expect them to come first to commercial markets and then ultimately maybe to, um, to, to the consumer markets. And with drones, it was the other way around that maybe about seven, eight years ago, Essentially, the first very low-cost drones emerged uh, in the consumer market. Um, we all know DJI and, and the Chinese drones um, that, that really, within, within a few years, uh, built a $5 billion industry. And it's only probably in the last four or five years that, you know, from those, uh, let's say, consumer drones, or let's say first consumer drones have then increasingly been also utilized in commercial applications, aerial photography, you know, and, and from there then increasingly also in, uh, in other tasks uh, like in flyability now in the industrial context. And that's, that's something we're still in an early adoption sort of cycle. So we're not, we're not yet at the peak, but, uh, but we see this now really accelerating uh, and the commercial market actually getting bigger than the than the uh, than the consumer drone market. Uh, in particular, if you add not just to the art, hardware, also the services side, the software in the back end, and so on, that commercial market has already overtaken the the consumer market. A very interesting development, Patrick. When you uh, started out with flyability, uh, sometimes it can be difficult for for startup companies, you know, to decide where they should start out. You already had a prototype. But then you obviously also need to find some customers. And you decided to develop the product with a very customer-centric approach. Can you walk us a bit more through the process about how you exactly did that and made sure that you actually develop a product that is also needed and used by the market and the right clients? Yes. So as we, as we discussed before, we, we, we had a prototype. So we, we already kind of had a technology and were a little bit in in looking for a problem to solve with it that is the kind of the, the, the common issues that that we have with the spin-offs from uh, from uh, from universities so in our case we we didn't directly start a company uh, we started getting together and really thinking through about this this problem uh, looking at did um, really exploring the market and doing market research for about six months or, or almost before we started actually uh, really working on, on any more technology um, uh, advancement. So uh, we, our first tactic to basically validate our market was to be very highly visible and transparent on our technology, uh, which is also counterintuitive uh, a lot because uh, we see a lot of young companies that are staying in stealth mode uh, a lot and protecting their ideas because obviously they have almost no resources. Uh, so anyone can you know, possibly come and uh, execute faster with much more money, etc. Weren't you afraid of that? We were probably afraid of that, but we also pretty quickly understood that we were only going to succeed if we had indeed feedback from the market and from pos possible customers. We were pioneers in an industry 
I would say, a, a niche or a segment of the industry that did not exist. Uh, this indoor inspection drones, uh, that the, we were the first ones to, to ever target that. So there was even more job, even more work to be able to understand what, how the industry was going to evolve, who it will serve. Uh, is it going to be, uh, a, a, I would say, a toy for, for people to be playing augmented uh, football? Is it going to be uh, uh, something that is helping police forces uh, to, um, um, to uh, uh, act in, in emergency um, situation? Is it going to be industrial inspection? Is it marketing tool? You know, all of this was, was very fuzzy. And when you, you look back, you say, oh, no, that was, that was obvious. But it, it was really not at the time. So, so we were very, very transparent and visible. So we showed up. Uh, um, we, sh we, we, we shooted videos and, uh, and showed it to the world and we, were, uh, uh, we managed to get pretty high volumes actually of, of views on those YouTube videos because it was a very visual new sort of, of product. Um, so that's allowed to get a lot of actually inbound contacts of people saying, hey, actually, you know, this thing, um, it's, a, it's a bit of a stretch, but we have this problem. Maybe it could help fix it. And that was our initial market research to kind of understand uh, where the traction was the, the highest and uh, what were the, the low-hanging fruits. Um, and uh, and from, uh, from there, we indeed worked a lot with customers shipping early prototypes and, uh, and iterating on it uh, and uh, always driving our uh, directions. Uh, from from customer feedback and not from our own feeling of what would make it a good uh, a good product. Obviously, we have changed a lot with the company growing because the first the first product is you know it, it kind of it is what it is. Your runway is pretty short. Uh, you need to find the really the quickest path or the minimum viable product from this uh, that you can make out of this technology that fits. Uh, some customers' needs, but you need also to throw away a lot of good ideas and uh, and uh, and uh, actually accept to really something that is uh, way way um, um, less than perfect because you, you will otherwise you will never never launch your product. No? Uh, so uh, in the in the early phases it was that, and we were uh, there was uh, obviously a lot of customer feedback, a bit of luck, a really good timing, um, our ability to get enough funding to to get this really long road from prototype to, to product that we, we managed to, uh, to, to have right. And, um, and it, was, it was a really good success on the market because this first product is still being sold uh, uh, today. And uh, we have, uh, we're coming close to a thousand units uh, actually uh, uh, sold. So, so it has been, it has been a, great, a great success. But that was the time when we were actually preparing our second product and uh, thinking, you know, now how are we going to be doing the same um, the, have the same approach because everything has changed. We have more, much more resources, but at the same time, uh, we also have a brand uh, and we uh, have expectations from customers that have gone up a lot. We cannot anymore ship products half finished and uh, uh, you know expect that they will uh, uh, think it's really cool and, uh, and 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 help us improve it. Um, we need. We start to have more and more. Uh, competitors that uh, that uh, that are looking at what we're doing because obviously you have if you were competitors when you're in a zero dollar market uh, once you you know you start to be successful people are looking at what you're doing and, and trying to replicate it so so we we had to find new approaches to remain really close to uh, close to customers so what we decided to do mostly was um, um, identify 
uh, a subset of our customers that's, um, that we, first of all, enjoy working with, uh, that are representative of a very promising uh, industry and that have a lot of opportunity uh, to go to the field, to, to run missions, and that have this, I would say, uh, um, understanding of what a prototype is. So uh, an expectation of reliability uh, that is in line with the very, very early stage of a, of a project. Um, and so we, we're working actually for uh, um, over a year with those people from the very, very first ideas, putting it in their hands and uh, learning from their experience on the field uh, how we should actually shape the, shape the product. So our, our team gives the, the first very general direction of where the product should be going. And then uh, it's through asking uh, um, asking a lot of questions to, uh, to to customers so first of all broadly to all customers some you know some some questionnaires some uh, some some calls with them to understand what they would like on a new product um, but also being able to work very much in depth with uh, a more restricted subset of customers with whom we can do uh, day-long workshops to to go really in depth of what's what features they need which how they need it implemented etc and I think you call that the, the product advisory board or something similar to this. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we call it the, the product advisory board, uh, which is basically beta testers. Uh, and it's, um, yeah, it's, it's great because some of those people really identify to, uh, to flyability, even though they all have a full-time job in another company because that's what qualifies them uh, as, uh, as relevant um, um, uh, parties to, to us is the fact that they, they, they are on the field and they need to deliver... Um, uh, inspections with our with our products, uh, but some of them on, on LinkedIn have this position as a product advisor at Flyability, which is a uh, uh, which is uh, uh, really uh, great. Yeah, and I would like to dig a bit deeper into the setup of of such an advisory board uh, because I think that's something that is not that common in the Swiss startup scene, or not that well executed as you do it. So, from your perspective, what would be a good number of companies to have in there uh, as as testers, basically as advisors? Is there any fixed number or? Yeah, no, I, I think, and as I was explaining, so first of all, I mean, the, the, what you need for your first product, what you need for your second product, and what we're planning for the next products is different. So you really need to adapt a lot to, uh, to, your, to your business, to your, to your, uh, um, your team, the, the maturity of your industry. So um, I think generally speaking, you will need this kind of, broad range approach where you can have more of a statistically significant feedback from the market uh, where you need as many people as you as you can to, to give general direction and, and you see really interesting things happening uh, when you when you ask those questions but you also want this more focused group of people who are able to really dedicate time to you uh, and who are uh, uh, I would say experts of the of the industry that you're trying to serve and that are, are ready to uh, to give you feedback so you need I mean I would say that uh, um, two, three people, you're at risk of having a bit of a biased opinion because your your sample is going to be fairly imperfect. Uh, above 10, you will need a pretty big product management team internally to be able to uh, actually serve them well 
because um, you need to spend a lot of time uh, building uh, building uh, um, uh, prototypes when your production uh, facility is not yet ready. So you are basically building by hand some prototypes. They're destroying them all the time. So you're rebuilding a new one, and so so it's probably ten is is uh, is already uh, is already quite uh, quite a lot. So for in our reality, between those two numbers is is is, is the right numbers from our from our uh, experience. But going forward, we're still toying with new ideas of of how to get in, in, you know, relevant market feedback, and uh, there is there is definitely other other ways to uh, uh, to do that, especially as we're working more and more with larger groups, larger companies at a higher level. Um, we uh, we need to 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 find ways to understand also how we serve not only the guy on the field that is doing the inspection, but maybe also his boss or the boss of his boss and maybe involve also those people in the in the in the in the product development uh, phases. And then how do you actually interact with with the testing group so so to say? Um, how do you interact with them, communicate with them on a regular basis? Does that happen when you're actually developing a new product or should there also be some regular check-in just to bounce ideas around and, and get feedback from them? And how do you actually do that in terms of communication, getting the feedback? I think we're always developing a new product. I mean, that's, you know, we're, we're never like, uh, okay, now we're, we're happy about what we have. Let's, let's, go, uh, let's go on the beach. So we're constantly, um, constantly um, um, indeed uh, uh, testing new ideas uh, uh, on the field and the, the successful ones, you know, turn into, uh, turn into uh, uh, products. Uh, I think that on the life cycle of a customer, obviously, um, we try to on, on a very on a much broader scale, I mean, with pretty much all our customer base, to remain in contact and uh, identify at time of purchase what he's envisioning to do with our tools, um, following purchase, whether the plan has changed and whether he has managed to actually do what he originally thought he would do. And sometimes it's very interesting how uh, they, um, oh yeah, I'm buying this robot because I have this particular uh, part of my factory uh, uh, that I, I, I think is going to be uh, important to inspect. And uh, a few months later, you realize that actually this part is needed inspection every five years. So in the end, he did it once, but he's now using it every day for uh, the inspection of, uh, of another part of the, of the, of the facility. And, and this is very important for our, our, our sales and marketing activities to have the right communication, target the right type of customers, um, more than... Uh, uh, and obviously understand the feature and the wish list, how we call uh, that we always ask customers when we, um, when we talk to them. Uh, um, and this is kind of the, I'd say, how we stay in touch with the, with the broader user base that we have and continue to understand their, their satisfaction and, and, and their pain points. And I can imagine that this sometimes also leads to not so easy decisions where you have great technology out there that you think is revolutionary but people don't actually see a value in that new technology and, or are not really interested in. How do you make these decisions about what features you should then include and how do you actually gather the customer feedback to, to guide these decisions too? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very challenging indeed because, um, and uh, I would say that often you also have uh, uh, um, people, you know, the, the people you hire are young uh, engineers coming you know, out of PhDs, so they are, uh, very passionate about the latest trends that there is in research. Um, you have uh, uh, also uh, investors who are uh, uh, sometimes also pushing for the for the latest uh, for the latest uh, uh, new trends, and uh, and and we have always uh, 
really focused on very pragmatic uh, decision based on, on, on the market needs. But at the same time, and this is, as it is often said, you know, the custom, it's not the customer's job to know what they want. So it's, it's a very, very complex topic because you need to be able to identify the technologies that are going to be relevant in the, the medium, long term. You need to be investing in those technologies uh, if they will make sense to your company. And you don't exactly know how uh, yet. Um, so um, this is what we call research project. And we have some of them that are that we're launching. We, we don't, it's, it's not yet a product. We, we're, we're just learning about this technology and trying to apply it. Uh, and we need to just set the cursor at a certain points. Like this is this is open-ended research. That uh, and it's not our job as a, as a company, uh, as a young company whose you know job is to uh, to be uh, uh, to be growing our, our our sales and business to do basic research. But to some extent, there's this middle ground of technologies that are coming to maturity and that we will need to be really mastering. Uh, when um, when the time is right to put it in our product and to make a huge uh, step, so so we need to to make the call of how much of it, how much research we we uh, are we actually allowing ourselves to do, which everybody wants to. Do. I mean, there's a bunch of like 60 engineers that we have here. Everybody wants to do research, but uh, sometimes you need to do more boring things such as industrialization and uh, uh, drawing very perfect uh, um, schematics for your parts, etc. Um, so, so um, basically, uh, I would say that it's a, it's a, it's a balance and it's an art. Unfortunately, more than a, more than a, a science, what you do is uh, what you believe is right, what customer tell you they want, what you believe that uh, customer actually wants, and uh, and your gut feeling that you have that you know I really don't want to miss out on on this thing. So let's let's throw some uh, some resources at this problem. So it's basically a symbiosis of these several parts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and also, what would be a good end result? You know, now you work with customers, uh, you have them in in, a, in an advisory group. What would be a good end result that you want to have as a company uh, when you actually set this up? So, what are you looking for? You also mentioned sales and marketing teams that are involved there to find the right customers, for example. Are there any examples that you can say, hey, these are good end results uh, of working with clients that you can then actually implement in your business? I mean, our we, we launched a new product this year, um, which is called Alias Two. So it is uh, the we try to put on this product everything we were very frustrated we couldn't on the first one because we needed to launch, and everything that our customer base has told us that was wrong or suboptimal uh, with the with the first product. And so that was that was a very exciting and uh, uh, transformational moment for flyability because we were able to, from a MVP that is fairly frustrating, because you know it does the job but it's minimum and we don't like to build minimum things um, uh, as engineers in in, in general. Uh, we were able to to go you know towards something that is really a great, well thought out product, much more. Uh, um, easy to use, much more higher quality data. So um, this Helios 2 product, I think, is, is the, the end result of this, this whole process of working with customers, working iteratively. Um, in, in a way, you can also see the first product as, as one step in this product development uh, uh, process uh, that allowed us to kind of build the segment, to, uh, to understand and to educate customers that maybe they, they 
could make use of this sort of technology uh, so that they can run the first experiment and then become more knowledgeable themselves about how they would use it in the future. And uh, so it's, it's a long, and, and that's the, the, the curse uh, of, uh, I would say, companies are really starting from, from scratch in the market that is very much in infancy that you need to, to, to create your market in a way uh, even though the need is existing, but the the, the market that the, actually the, the drone is can be a solution for this problem is not, and uh, you need to spend a lot of effort and a lot of time in doing that before you are able to to scale the, the business. Mm -hmm. Now I'd also like to focus a bit on the investor side, on the investor perspective. Alexander, you already uh, discovered viability in 2015, but it was still too early for an investment back then. Then in 2018, you decided to invest in the company. So what changed over this period of time that actually convinced you to make an investment? Yeah, so 2015, I think I, I saw you flying a drone in a ballroom of one of the big hotels here in, in Lausanne. <laughs> we used to do that a lot, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, so that was the, the first impression. And then when I talked to Patrick, um, you know, it was it was clear he was still looking for the application for that drone and you know some of the ideas were really scaling the drone down and go into the consumer space which I found um, a risky proposition you know launching a consumer product from from a Swiss cost base is, is probably difficult but he had also already first ideas in, in uh, towards the industrial applications and and so at the point I decided that you know it's still in terms of value proposition, proof of value that is too early. We as investors, we like to see, if not customer traction, at least some good use cases where where you have maybe you know launch customers that that confirm to you this product does have or create value for them. Um, and then uh, 2018, this was clearly different. Um, so at that point, uh, they had already over a hundred customers, they had shipped drones, um, and we were able to talk to these customers and, and, and we got some very, very valuable feedback. And at that point, as investor, you then you start, you see also the numbers in financials, you know, sales tripled, doubled over, over the, the years. Um, and, and so you start thinking as investor, what could go wrong? Why could this not continue? So you, you, you know, you start analyzing essentially, is there any any, you know, I mean, first, where are we in the adoption cycle of, of this product? Is, is this already, are they already at 90% market share and uh, in a year or two the market will be saturated? Or is it really just at the, at the very beginning? And that was clearly the case with flyability. The other, the uh, regulatory environment, um, you know, can these drones fly freely without permission? And that's in an indoor context much, much easier than in an outdoor context. And the third was, of course, also competition, and in particular competition from lower-cost manufacturers like from China, um, where we saw that the market per se was certainly still too small for a large player to, uh, to make a significant effort to get into this, this uh, market. And at the same time that uh, the technology was really differentiated um, and had also, you know, patent protection around it, but, uh, but much more, I think, also in terms of maturity to market, it was so differentiated that, um, that it wouldn't be easy for someone to just copy and come into, into it. 
So that's and and that triggered our decision. I mean, then then we we saw the um, we were able during due diligence to fly the Alios too. So we had that view on the next product launch, um, uh, and uh, and that was just personally for me flying that uh, second generation drone uh, was very easy to handle. That was a, a major experience and we clearly also had from the market the feedback uh, that this is where what the market was waiting for so so it was the perfect moment to invest in the company and then you basically felt hey the rocket is launching i want to be part of that rocket ride absolutely exactly i mean then then you see here here is something really taking off plus you know the next booster stage is about to uh, about to uh, to ignite uh, and and uh, and so you want to uh, jump on onto that rocket um, what is obviously as as investor you always think you're paranoid you think what can go wrong now so you know does that second stage really ignite or not and then uh, that's that's essentially then the risk the leap of faith you're taking as investor that you say okay let's uh, let's invest uh, and and uh, when things uh, go less good as expected uh, then then you you you're prepared to help fix that of course huh? Are there any good answers to these questions about what could go wrong from an investor's perspective that let you sleep more quietly at night? I, I think, I mean, you need to, to be very honest with yourself. You will not find answers to all the questions. So you just need to keep them in mind and, and uh, start looking for ways to, to anticipate something going wrong. Uh, I mean, particularly launching a new product, a second generation product. I mean, my personal experience in life as VC, I've seen such sort of second generation product launches go awfully wrong, uh, where afterwards you lose two years because the product uh, had to be back to the drawing board, completely redesigned. And then essentially all the funding that you have given for the product launch is consumed before you can launch the product actually. And so, so that's what you're trying then to, you know, try to anticipate uh, on a board level. You try to challenge the team or at least investigate, uh, get a feeling whether, whether they are aware of, of those risks, whether they are anticipating some of what can be going wrong, whether they're su planning sufficient time to validate the product prior to launching it um, and, and, uh, and work with them on a, on a, on a feasible plan. And Patrick, I can imagine building such a successful company, uh, you also faced a couple of challenges along the way. How did you actually solve them and what were the biggest challenges that you faced during uh, the setup and the build-up of Fiability? Yeah, the challenges are, are numerous and uh, are often very difficult to predict as a, again, as a first-time entrepreneur because the role as, a, as a, a founder and as a CEO evolves so quickly with the company scaling up that at some point you kind of need to take problems as they as they come sort of like a whack-a-mole sort of game um, and um, have a great I would say network of advisors and people who've been going through that that can uh, that can help out and take some some um, take a step back with regards to the situation and, and help uh, anticipate the issues so obviously it definitely starts with Building a company, it's a bit of an administrative nightmare when you absolutely don't know anything about how things should be, uh, should be, should be done. Um, um, sort of, uh, uh, yeah, doing 
lots and lots of uh, administrative work and really working in the unknown. So this is like the very, very first, uh, first step. Then it becomes about uh, starting to raise uh, the first rounds and getting the first customers, which need to be done very much in parallel because we, you know, with just uh, your your own personal money, you can only go 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 that far towards uh, finding your first customers and delivering a, a, a prototype, and you kind of need that to get the first investor. So this is a, a, a game uh, where you you're really uh, playing against the, the the clock to to be able to uh, to get this right. Um, then it becomes about scaling the team, and this is also uh, um, you know big hiring challenges, and you realize that it's often it, it feels like a rich people's problem to be, oh yeah, it's, it's difficult to hire people. Uh, when you're a very early founder, like, yeah, it's difficult to have money to hire people. Hiring them actually is, is pretty, pretty easy. But no, you realize when you, when you, the company is doubling every year, uh, finding the right people is just such a critical success factor that, um, uh, it, it is actually your priority number one, uh, at some, uh, at some point. Then it's, um, then you get a lot of more customers. You need to manage, uh, uh, they're, um, make sure that they're, they're satisfied, make sure you keep in contact with them, uh, scale, um, scale the team in, in maturity because by then you will need intermediate management layers. You will need to change the governance processes that make everybody work well and keep the spirit of a small company in, uh, uh what has become a 50, uh, uh, or a hundred people, uh, uh, people company. And, uh, and then it comes down to, to, to culture, to uh, uh, making sure that we have a, a value system that is really shared, that everybody's focusing in the, in the, in the right direction. So the, the challenges change all the time. And that's also what makes the, the adventure so, uh, so, so exciting, especially when you are, uh, when you're eager to, to learn, uh, to learn new things. Um, is, is this the fact that you can never get bored in a, in a, in the, the role of a, of a, of a founder of a company, I think. And I think this people part that you mentioned is really crucial for scaling up a company and making it a big success. Mm -hmm. Do you have any recommendations on that? Obviously a, a nice office view as you have helps and also a good life quality in Switzerland, but how do you actually hire the best people that also fit your culture and where do you find them? Do you have any recommendations for growing startups, how they could solve or do a better job on this? Well, first of all, we didn't start in a nice office with a view on the lake. Uh, we started pretty much in a, in a, in a basement and uh, it's our fifth or sixth office already in our, in our, uh, in our history. Uh, back in the days, our conference room was the bar down the street because we had no, we had only one room for everybody. So every time we needed to have a, you know, a, a difficult discussion with someone, we would move to the bar, which is not an ideal place to have it in the ideal, uh, a complex discussion with someone anyway. But um, no, um, I think on how to, how to find the right people, it's, there's, I, I don't at least have a, have a, a secret uh, a recipe. Uh, there is um, the workplace is changing. I mean, the, the people in, um, on, on, the, on the job market are, are really changing fast with the new generation uh, coming that are uh, in search, for a, in search for, a, for a purpose that are very, very demanding towards the companies they, they work with as well uh, and also giving a lot. Uh, and uh, um, if, you, if you play the cards right and you're able to mentor them enough so that they can they can they can grow and uh, and make your company their own personal project 
um, and uh, you know obviously it goes through uh, stock option plans and uh, and uh, a good uh, a good culture a good uh, good leadership it takes a lot of time and it's very easy to uh, to get it uh, to get it wrong but when you are able to get this right with uh, your early employees then they become very important pillars of your organization uh, uh, later on and uh, um, those early employees pretty much all of our early employees are still with us today and are are really uh, making the the business uh, the business work on a, on a day to day basis now i think that's also a big compliment basically because that shows that you probably do a good job in that area if the early employees are still part of the company i i think so and this is part of what we felt we have built indeed uh, a team uh, that is that is working well and it's and especially in those times when uh, I'm focusing a lot on, on, on governance topics and on, on how to build a company that is a very efficient machine and transforming, uh, um, transforming uh, uh, resources into great products uh, on, the, on the market. You looking at personal success of people who are feeling good, who are feeling that they are being uh, um, performing at 100% of their capacities, that don't have internal roadblock, uh, no politics. Uh, you know, when you see this happening, you're, you're really proud. Uh, and uh, almost as proud as when you have uh, success on the market with a product, because it means that you have the machine that will allow you further down the line to have a, a, a good product on the market that you can launch. Fantastic. Alexander, after Swisscom Ventures actually invested in Fiability, you also joined the board of the company. So I'm wondering, beyond the financial support, how does Swisscom Ventures also contribute to the company's success that they invest in? What do you work with the company on? What's your involvement? I mean, we normally, through board or through advisory or even, even just as an active shareholder, we, we try to, to um, bring into the company our vision of the market and our, our ideas. Um, also our knowledge of a particular sector and so we do in the background also quite a lot of research around in, in flyability's case of course around the drone topic and and so our insights uh, we, we try to I mean we share with the with the founders and we, we strategize in a, uh, around it then as Swisscom of course I mean we have on one hand quite a strong interest in the drone market per se um, more, let's say, in the in the drone uh, airspace control areas, in the drone uh, application areas, and in the software side of of managing the data captured by by drones. So that is one one side, and then uh, the the other is is that um, that um, obviously again Swisscom being an IT company, we are very interested in the backend solutions of of uh, what what is you know how can you share that data that is captured by drones um, in, in a most efficient way. And that's also where we're trying to uh, work with, uh, with the flyability team on, on the strategy, you know, where to integrate, with what tools to integrate and, and what partnerships uh, to, uh, to build. Patrick, in 2018, you closed your 11 million Series B financing round. Now I'm wondering, what have you already done with the money until today and what is still in the pipeline for the future? Definitely, we have well delivered on the, our new product. That was the, kind of the first large project that we wanted to undertake. At Flyability, we are we have 
maybe it's it's a bit different uh, uh, across different industries and different startups, but we are hugely uh, self-funded. Now we have uh, our sales are uh, mostly what is allowing us to to run the the, the day to day. Uh, with this new product launch and with the business growing, we have a lot of working capital uh, that is in, 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 you know, increasing in terms of inventory, uh, in terms of uh, accounts receivable, working with large companies as well. So you, know, you always have some delay between the moment you close the deal, the moment that the, the cash is in, your, um, uh, is, in your, um, is in your account. So I would say that part of this Series B was kind of preparing the company for the, the next you know, level of, of size, which requires some... Uh, uh, some um, um, some money to, to, to allow the scaling up. And uh, another part was really dedicated to our internationalization and uh, our, uh, the growth of our, of our sales team, which is um, something we've progressed quite well on as we have uh, uh, opened, um, uh, opened a subsidiary now in the United States to serve like, our biggest markets that we were currently serving from Switzerland. So a lot of traveling and uh, a lot of distance with the customers which is now uh, uh, something that uh, we're uh, getting much uh, much uh, better at it and obviously there's all those research projects that we're also talking uh, uh, talking about that uh, represent what is going to be the the future um, evolutions of this uh, of this industry and in, in which we're, we're also putting a lot of money and so this is what uh, what we have been financing as well through this um, uh, through this financing around last year Fantastic. So there are exciting times ahead. Absolutely, yeah. So before we conclude with the episode, uh, I prepared some a new format for you guys, uh, some rapid fire questions. So what I basically like to do is I give you a choice of two options and you basically have to choose one and quickly explain in one sentence why you made this choice. I first start with Alexander for the first one. <laughs> so your, your choice will be humans or robots. Um, definitely humans. Uh, robots, I see them as tools, uh, you know, more or less operated by humans. You can, you can have a lot, of, uh, a lot of autonomy in those robots, but the, the, the important is always the humans. Um, we, make, we must make sure that any automation, artificial intelligence serves us primarily and not another purpose. A very important political topic also at the moment. Sure. Patrick, forgiveness or permission? Yeah, it's it's the biggest uh, one of the big uh, value statements of liability. Uh, ask for forgiveness, not permission. So definitely, uh, uh, definitely for forgiveness. Uh, need to be agile, move really fast, and uh, that's what it's that's what we mean through this uh, sentence. Or Zuckerberg would say, move fast and break things. Right? Absolutely, same idea. And the next one also for you: comfort zone or risk taking. Risk taking, uh, obviously, I think uh, <laughs> building a, a company is, is all about uh, risk taking for us, for our employees, uh, for uh, for our investors. So, <laughs> uh, no, definitely, uh, definitely risk taking. I mean, nothing, uh, nothing good uh, comes out of staying in your comfort zone all your time. Absolutely. And the last one for you: wealth or happiness? Happiness, I guess. Well. Wealth can be taken in a very, uh, I would say, metaphorical sense. Uh, of, uh, uh, but if wealth means money, definitely happiness is the end. Is the end goal. Makes sense. Alexander, last one for you: small teams, like ten-person teams, for example, or big teams. I like to invest in small teams and sell when they are big teams. Sounds like a good plan. 
Is there anything else that you would like to add to the show that we have not talked about yet from your perspective? We could take for hours, I guess. Yeah, talk exactly, for hours, I guess. Exactly. It was, a, it was a, great, a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with us today. And I wish you all the best and lots of success for Flyability and also for Swisscom Ventures. Thank you so much. Merci. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the content, we would be thrilled to receive your rating on Apple Podcasts. That way you not only support Swisspreneur, but also help other entrepreneurs discovering the show and finding more valuable information on how to run their businesses. Next week, we will already be back with an all new episode of the Swisspreneur Show. So we hope to see you again then for a new episode.